DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. It's wonderful to be with you, Chris. Thank you for taking us through these inner chambers of the castle of Teresa of Avila, her spiritual castle. We're getting right into the very heart and depth of the degrees of prayer or, or the, the practice of mental prayer and some of the beautiful, beautiful graces that happen when we're intimate and close to the Lord. I am so grateful that we have you to help us with Chapter 8 of the Sixth Mansion because this, I found, it's a short one uh, compared to some others, but it's powerful. Even though the amount of writing is maybe not as long as other ones, but it's not only powerful, but it's very, very rich in terms of its content. And so it's worth spending a little bit of time with just to give a little bit of context. We're in the eighth chapter of the Sixth Mansion. This inner chamber, she has earlier described for us, is almost indistinguishable from the last. Her last book, which is on the Seventh Mansion, the most inner of them all, is shorter than actually this book on the Sixth Mansion. But when she describes the Sixth Mansion, it's kind of one long chamber with the Seventh Mansion, meaning that those who make it into this space have already arrived at a place of deepest union. The transition between the graces that she describes in this chapter and the graces that she is going to describe in the last chapter, it's kind of a continuum of intimacy, deeper and deeper intimacy. And that's why these graces in this particular chapter have the poignancy that you observed, they are powerful graces. And the deeper you go into your intimacy with Christ Jesus, the more powerful the graces that he gives you are. The reason why that is true is if he gave you powerful graces early on in your spiritual life when you were less mature, they would kind of overwhelm you. You wouldn't be strong enough to receive them. Up until this time, he's very patiently worked with you giving you grace after grace, each grace healing your humanity, building you up, preparing you for the next grace until you get to this chapter 8. And in this, she describes a very special kind of grace called an intellectual vision. Let's talk about that, Anthony, because that is one that is probably more common, is it not, with those who the church have acknowledged seem to receive the an extraordinary type of mystical 
experience. And what I mean by that, there are those who will see something with their eyes and they feel it so clearly that this is uh, a, a vision of something significant, whether it's a person or it's a place or something. But then there are those who will have this this intellectual vision. And that probably is more common, is it not? People can have visions that they see with their eyes or even visions that they see with their imagination and that this is common. And yet it is so. People do have these experiences. And part of the reason why it's difficult for us to talk about and we suspect them so much, we have a lot of suspicion around them, is because our imagination is easily deceived. And even what we think we see with our eyes, there's sometimes we think we see something that we didn't see. And no one wants to be kind of looked upon as a a religious weirdo. I was just at a conference and one of the speakers talked about how faithful Catholics in the eyes of the world are like weirdos because what we believe and how we believe it is so extremely different than the prevalent worldview. And if the speaker called us weirdos, he also said that those who don't know Jesus, who don't follow our faith, in other words, those who are not weirdos, they're a lot more like zombies. They're kind of animated to live for something, but kind of thoughtlessly. And there's a way in which as you grow in maturity with the Lord, he gives you visions that you see with your eyes and things that you see with your imagination and noises that you hear with your ears and so forth. And the purpose of those is to communicate something to us that we need. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not meant to distract us. And they're not meant to become a a source of anxiety for us or fascination or sensational. They happen. They happen because there was the incarnation. When Jesus rose from the dead, people saw his risen body. We have public apparitions going throughout 2,000 years of the Lord and Our Lady and the saints and the angels. People have seen these things. And what Teresa of Avila is kind of saying this in her thing is that this is somewhat normative to see these things. Can you be deceived by what you see with your eyes or what you imagine with the power of your imagination? Can it just simply be fantasy and not have any reality to it or things that you hear or even touch? And, And the answer is yes, you can be deceived by all of that. But nonetheless, the Lord chooses to communicate himself through his angels and saints, and even through apparitions of himself in, in these ways. This means that when a child, for example, says that they felt the presence of the Lord or saw him or heard Our Lady speak to them or anything like that, you know, we shouldn't immediately discount it as a, an overactive imagination of a child. Mm-hmm. And when our spiritual friends talk about spiritual experiences that they've had, There's a certain kind of humble open-mindedness that we should have about it. It doesn't mean that we don't discern them because sometimes people see things that aren't true and and they respond in an irrational way. And so God never acts irrationally. He might act above and beyond reason, but he doesn't act irrationally. He doesn't tell us to do immoral things, for example. And so all of these things require discernment. But there's a certain open humility before the way the Lord works in this soul and that soul. If you're a soul that sees visions and has locutions and all of those wonderful things and vivid things go on in your imagination, 
praise God for all those gifts. There are other souls that God doesn't work that way through. And it doesn't mean that he loves them less. In fact, it may be a sign that he loves them more because the more powerful the grace, the less you are able to perceive it. And the more powerful the the presence of the Lord to you, the less your natural powers kind of fail before the presence of the Lord. If you think about this Eucharistically, Jesus is fully present to us, body and blood, soul and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament. But our, our senses see bread and wine. Our powers of perception, the power of our imagination, is unable to see the form of the Lord except through the signs of bread and wine. And that's the source and summit of our whole life of prayer right there. And so going back to the idea of visions and locutions and things being perhaps more common than we think they are, they are more common, but they're also more of beginner's experiences. They happen earlier in our prayer life. At a certain stage, the Lord begins to take away what is visible to our eyes and what we hear with our ears and what we can imagine with the power of our imagination. And he begins to communicate to us in a higher way, in a way that allows him to communicate more of himself into us more freely. And that's what this intellectual vision is. John of the Cross has slightly different categories, but he kind of goes in the same direction. This intellectual vision She speaks of or describes in terms of an awareness of the presence of God being with you, not something that you see with your imagination or with your eyes, but this kind of deep burning intuition that he is with you right now. Together with that experience of intellectual vision of the risen Lord being with you, accompanying you, There are also experiences of his absence where you've gotten accustomed to him being with you or you following him, being close with, and all of a sudden he removes his presence. This is a very painful thing. It's an intellectual vision because it's involving the power of your intuition and you receive certain truths. Teresa of Avila, she speaks about a truth being received by a soul in which she's told not to be afraid. And this do not be afraid echoed in the inner chambers of her being. She didn't hear it with her ears. She didn't imagine it. It was a truth communicated into the depths of her soul. Someone who's called for deep intimacy with the Lord needs the courage that comes from a word like that. Because the deeper you're drawn to the Lord, and to use my friend's expressing the weirder you get in the eyes of the world, the more you will be persecuted and rejected and misunderstood even by those you love and who are closest to you. And so in order to stay in that intimate friendship with the Lord and ready to do as well, you need a deeper kind of courage being communicated into you. You also need a deeper kind of humility. You kind of know that this is a true intellectual vision because Instead of puffing you up and making you think that somehow you've arrived and you're better than your neighbor, you have a deep sense of how needy you are before the Lord, how vulnerable and inadequate you are in his presence. You have a deeper sense of thinking of others as 
better and more important than yourself rather than you being more important than them. You feel yourself at their service. You feel as if you are a servant for them. Jesus called me into intimacy. He gave me a sense of his presence with me. He spoke a word not to be afraid so that I can serve my brothers and sisters. And these are some of the powerful messages that we have in this chapter 8. Yeah, I think this is uh, so incredibly important because there's such an intimacy that has developed between the soul and with God. And she will say, this is, in this particular case that she identifies, there is no way of expecting it. And it's not something that you can imagine. But it, it is just this incredible, I don't know how else to say it, but an intimacy of heart, isn't it not? Well, there's a sense of intimacy of heart, and at the same time, the presence of this otherness, someone other than you is being is present to you. Mm-hmm. Actually, in the very beginning, this kind of mystical grace is distressing because you're aware that this being who is other than you is completely present to you. You can't see them, you can't hear them. You can't even imagine the presence is so much greater, your imagination can't get around it. So it's not really consoling at first. A spiritual presence can be disconsoling, actually disturbing, distressing, as Teresa of Avila uses the word. And that distress that's caused, if it's the evil spirit, the evil spirit loves the distress that it causes the soul. It manifests itself to cause the distress because it gives distress and anxiety allow it to predict and control your behavior. Jesus, he doesn't want you to be distressed, so he's going to begin to work to relieve the distress. He's going to work to console you, to reassure you. He's going to speak this word of courage into you. This Think about this is exactly what the angel Gabriel did for Mary. Hail full of grace, and she was greatly distressed by these words. Do not be afraid. That truth that we see unveiled in the Annunciation is uh, at work here in what Teresa of Avila is describing. Jesus becomes present to you. And as you said, there's a deep intimacy that he's inviting you into by this awareness of, of the total otherness and greatness and immensity of his presence. You know you're not imagining it. It's more real than you are, even though your your senses can't really perceive what's going on. And and it frightens you in the beginning because it's so much greater than you you think it's going to be. And then almost immediately, he begins to reassure you of his love for you and invite you into a more intimate sharing of his life. That's one of the reasons when this presence goes away, it also distresses the soul. It distresses you when it comes and it distresses you for a different reason. When it goes away, the person can't help but thinking this is more John of the Cross than what Teresa says here. What did I do to offend the Lord? And it's not that the Lord is less present to you in the sense of he's holding together your existence. He's fully present to you in the life of grace. The indwelling of the Trinity has not been diminished just because your intellectual vision, your intellectual sense of his presence isn't there, he's present to you in a different kind of way, maybe even greater magnitudes. They, the poor power of your intellect just can't even participate in remotely. But there's a sense of this stage of intimacy of his coming and his going. 
And if you think about this is the whole experience of the life of the church. Jesus rises from the dead. He's with the 12 in the upper room, but then he leaves. Uh, he ascends into heaven, and yet he's present to us until the end of time. And so we live in this kind of paradox of deepest, um, total, other, immense presence and absence a being with and a going away at the same time. And what Teresa of Avila is saying here is that at this stage of intimacy, you experience that paradox in your intimacy with Christ Jesus. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying, Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us. That we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. She will say in this chapter, too, that even this soul could experience these graces of heaven. 
you know, these graces of the Trinity, and I'm, these are my words, I guess, in, in trying to, to fathom, like, as you said, this richness. But she said it's possible that the soul will also experience the presence of Our Lady or of a saint. Again, one of those immersions into heaven. Am I reading that correctly? I think that's very good. And I think what you're saying justifies uh, what Ignatius of Loyola recommends at the end of his spiritual exercises, where you have this holy colloquy with the angels and saints, each of the persons of the divine trinity, about the graces you receive during your meditation. For someone who's just beginning in prayer, the imagination is highly involved, and there's nothing wrong with it that's normal and good. It's how God baptizes your imagination as you use it in prayer, and you use it in these holy conversations with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and Mary and the angels and the saints. But what she's talking about here actually grounds that experience. As long as the colloquy that you do at the end of the exercises never goes beyond what I imagine and who I want to talk to and the kind of conversations I want to have. Well, it's a good pious exercise. It's baptizing your imagination. It allows you to unpack the graces, and so there's nothing unhealthy about that. But the Lord wants to communicate his immensity to you and his otherness to you because he wants your heart to be immense, and he wants your heart to be holy, meaning totally other from this world. And just as he will do that through communicating the immensity of his presence to you, he will also communicate the immensity of his presence and his holiness through his mother Mary and through the saints and angels who also can communicate to you in the in this kind of level of intellectual vision. And so that what's the difference? In the beginning of a colloquy, you're dealing with your natural powers imbued with grace and kind of engaged in this kind of pious meditation, which is a very good thing. But that leads somewhere. That leads to the experience that Teresa of Avila is describing in chapter 8 of, of book 6, where you're in deepest intimacy with the Lord, and he starts revealing to you how exceedingly generous, how excessive his love is, how totally other and transcendent he is. And he communicates all of this to you and makes you aware of it in a way that you can't doubt anymore. The reason why he's doing that is he's expanding, transforming your deepest interior. He's opening up uh, caverns inside you to be filled with his presence. Until you experience his otherness, until you experience the immensity of his presence, you, you don't even know you're capable of being a dwelling place for that much being. And I'm expressing that poorly because it's it's not that much being. It's excessive. It's the best word I can pull out of the hat. It's much more than we could ever imagine or hope for. And all of this is present to you and flooding in with you and accompanying you each moment of your life. And we're only vaguely aware of it until you have an experience like this. Then all of a sudden you're aware of how much other the Lord is. This humbles you. You realize your smallness before this. You actually become capable of a deeper humility when you realize how immense and loving and great and holy the Lord is through in himself and through his angels and saints. It does, as a good spiritual mother would do, is to bring up the, as she would put it, the fancies 
the some that our imaginations can sometimes fall into those traps, and you kind of alluded to that as well. That there can be, um, we can get carried away with our own imagination in these moments, and that's why it's important to have such a good spiritual guide. Uh, and I'll preface it: a good spiritual guide. In paragraph ten is one of her famous things where she talks about if your confessor is not very spiritual, a good theologian would be preferable, best of all, one who unites both qualities. And so what does this mean? You want a confessor, a spiritual director, who both knows his stuff theologically and is actually rooted deep in a life of prayer to help you discern what's going on, because you can be deceived. As I told you, daughters, none of you who are led by this way, need to feel alarm. Fear is good, and we should be cautious and not overconfident. For if such favors made you careless, it would prove that they were not from God, as they did not leave results I described. One of the results, the humility that you have with this kind of prayer, is you have a deeper fear of the Lord, a deeper concern not to do anything to offend Him. There's a certain kind of confidence. You don't sit on your laurels when you've had this. You feel actually more vigilant because of of this grace that you describe. It would be well at first to tell your case under the seal of confession to a thoroughly qualified theologian, for that is the source whence we must obtain light, or to some highly spiritual person. If your confessor is not very spiritual a good theologian would be preferable. Best of all, one who unites both qualities. Don't be disturbed if he calls it mere fancy. If it is, it can neither harm nor benefit your soul as much. so much. Recommend yourself to divine majesty and beg him not to allow you to be misled. Everything I describe, somebody can work up in their imagination and, and actually imagine that they've had this experience and that's why you want to bounce it off somebody who's a good theologian, but, but also deeply spiritual. They can help you discern, what did you receive and how do you respond to it? And if it's just the work of your fantasy, well, then you don't really focus on it. You just let it go. If God worked through your fantasy in some way, praise him. All, you know That's a wonderful thing. If it's an intellectual vision where the Lord is communicating himself to you and a truth has kind of seized your heart, a confessor, a spiritual director, may ask you to begin to ponder and pray about this immense grace that you received through this intellectual vision, because it, it may be very important for God's will in your life. So that's what this good spiritual director will help you discern. If it's just your religious fantasy, you've just kind of, you've self-generated this awareness of God's presence. No matter what you self-generate, he is fully present to you. So you're not deceived and it's not done any harm to you, but just let it go and don't pay any more attention to it because it's not really going to help you above and beyond the grace that you've already received. God has already given every, you everything you want. Then the word that's imparted to you becomes something to ponder, just like Our Lady pondered all these things in her heart. She goes on, if I might, it would be worse should he tell you the devil is deceiving you. Although no learned man would say so if he sees you, the effects in you, the, the effects described. Even should you, your advisor say this, I know that the same Lord is beside you, will comfort and reassure you, and go to your counselor and give him light 
that he may impart it to you. If the director, though given to prayer, has not been led by God in this way, he will at once take fright and condemn it. Therefore, I advise you to choose a qualified theologian and, if possible, one who is also spiritual. The prioress ought to allow you this, for although she may feel sure that you are safe from delusion because you lead a good life, yet she is bound to permit you to consult someone for your mutual security. When you have conferred with these persons, be at peace. Trouble yourself no more about the matter, for sometimes when there is no cause for fear, the demon gives rise to such immoderate scruples that a person cannot be satisfied with consulting her confessor only once on the subject, especially if he's inexperienced or timid, or if he bids her consult him again. So what's going on here, and this is important, I think, for those who are in positions of authority to kind of listen, it can happen that a spiritual director is wrong. And what Teresa of Avila is saying, even when your spiritual director is wrong, don't get excited or upset or worried. Just pray for your spiritual director. Mm -hmm. And God will take care of your spiritual director. You don't need to correct your spiritual director. God will take care of your spiritual director. Provided he has a well-formed mind, he's a qualified theologian, good theology gives a spiritual director what he needs. And if he's also spiritual, that's icing on the cake, she's saying. And so this whole paragraph is talking about after you've had this experience, it can be kind of exciting. What Teresa's trying to say is you kind of need to not live in the excitement over what happened, but live grounded in a deep confidence in God's love, no matter whether the experience is understood or not understood no matter whether the experience is from God or not from God, whether or not the experience is indeed this intimacy that she's just described or not this, there's a certain holy, deep indifference to the state of consciousness that an intellectual vision expresses. The key thing then for a person of prayer, a contemplative soul, is to be at peace and not be anxious about whether you're understood or not but to trust God, to pray for your director. The key thing is not to worry about whether at long last I've experienced this crowning moment or not. The key thing is if God has blessed you with it, to say yes to the grace and to go deeper, or if he's not, just to humbly kind of smile at yourself and go, well, you know, there goes my imagination again. The Lord is taking me on his journey and he'll get me where I need to go when he wants and how he wants, and I can trust him. Trust is key. Working to be at peace is key. What the evil one will try to do with this kind of experience, even the authentic mystical experience of intellectual vision, he knows that he's on the losing side, and so he's going to try to ruin it. And one of the ways he ruins it is by making somebody too excited about whether others understand it or whether they understand it or whatever. We need to kind of renounce the excitement and humbly accept what it is for what it is and thank God for for whatever grace it was. And then if it wasn't a grace, the spiritual director to have a holy indifference. Holy indifference, we're indifferent to everything that is not God's will. And it is never God's will for us to be too excited and euphoric about spiritual experiences. I can't help but 
say with a, a smile, and I hope the soul will too, peace be still and know that I'm God. Just, it, it, but say it with a joy and with a smile, peace be still and know that I'm God. I mean, that's something that we can rest with, can't we, Anthony? Yeah, that's the great movement of humility and inner maturity is to rest in the love and the mercy and confidence of what God is doing. And we don't need to be in control. We don't need to figure things out. What we need to do is grow in virtue. We need to die to ourselves. We need to be humble and single-minded in serving the Lord. We do those things. We be still in those things, as you say. That becomes the great task as we draw closer and closer into union with the Lord. Any final thoughts on this magnificent chapter? At the very end of the chapter, there's kind of a very powerful line. We can never feel very certain about such matters until the true judge rewards each one according to his merits. Then we shall be surprised to find how very different his judgment from that of this world. May he be forever praised. Amen. I've talked about it in terms of humility in our little talk today. God, in the way he sees the world, is so different in the way he sees our lives and the way he sees what's going on in our hearts is so very different than what we are able to perceive or judge. And that otherness of God, the greatness and immensity that he sees, it's, it's not that it goes against what we perceive to be good, holy, and true, and meaningful. He's not a nihilistic otherness. He's a deeper meaning, a deeper beauty, a deeper glory, a deeper insight, a deeper judgment than we have. I think anyone, and I yearn for this for myself too, who all of a sudden becomes aware of the immensity of the otherness of God. Some have talked about a manifestation of our conscious that occurs in it awareness of who we are all of a sudden before the just judge. And this is not a bad thing at all, because anyone who begins to see the judgments of God, their hearts are only enriched by it and their lives only improved. And their ability to love those given to them only made that much deeper. Just beautiful, Anthony. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for taking this time. And I look forward to continuing our journey through the interior castle. I can't wait. Thank you, Anthony. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you will find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.